A few bits from Timbald and the Boundary Review Committee's report from a few months ago. Later in the programme, we hear from Anne Corlett, who again questioned the Infrastructure Minister about when his department will lower speed limits in residential areas. Also, Laurie Hooper talks about proposed changes to constituency boundaries. But first, the energy strategy was debated in Tynwald last week and Minister Claire Barber didn't have it all her own way. Well, we, did, we published the um, strategy back in, I think it was June 23, as you say. Um, and in fact, if I recall, there was then a debate that sort of touched on it. So in my mind, I was thinking, oh, we've sort of shelved that, it's done. But of course, I'd forgotten that we hadn't tabled substantive motion. Rather than coming and talking to me about it, Mr Thomas decided to be helpful. He would then table it himself. Um, But obviously that didn't allow me the opportunity to wrap up and provide some of the answers that hopefully I've been able to provide to members today. So, you know, I respect that absolutely we we missed that. And I've apologised numerous times in this court. We made a mistake in that regard. Um, But that was an oversight. There's no conspiracy. There really is nothing more to it than it was just something that got missed. So urgent legislation that was rushed through both branches uh, to deal with consumers being cut off by energy companies. There's no mention of that in this report, but of course the report was issued um, six months before that emergency legislation was felt necessary. Yes, and I think they're looking at two different things. I mean, the energy strategy is predominantly looking at uh, you know, supply of energy. Um, at the minute, that's looking predominantly at renewables, that being the big focus, and obviously the future around the second in- interconnector, um, rather than cutting off people on a operational level, um, which is very much something that I feel is out with the energy strategy. I think it ties into those points around cost of living and some of those challenges that inform our decision-making, but it isn't necessarily something that I think would fit within the energy strategy. So it wouldn't have um, been in this one, obviously, because this happened prior to that decision happening. Um, But I'm not totally convinced that it would necessarily fit comfortably in the content of a report of this nature, even in the next iteration. There is no doubt, certainly, uh, if you if you follow um, Paul Crane's exciting uh, graphs, which which demonstrate in in, in quite graphic terms um, the, the 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 massive increase in in, in temperature o- over relatively recent times. No doubt that we need to to take some form of action. Is there though a danger that we take? what seems to be the right decision and then potentially create even bigger problems. Um, I mean, there do appear to be lots of criticisms uh, readily available, in, including a recent article in The Guardian suggesting that the mad dash to uh, renewable energy is actually coming at a, a significant environmental cost itself. I think that that's the reason we've developed the energy strategy in the way we have, which is an iterative document, because we do recognise there will be new technologies. Saying that, I think that actually wind technology, as an example, is relatively well established. And I think that, you know, as with everything, you'll find some people who will challenge some elements of it. Um, but in reality, the, the technology has been around for a long time. It's not just a couple of years old. It's, it's well established. Whereas what we are seeing, obviously, is some new information around batteries, for example. I mean, they have massively decreased in, in terms of the cost of battery storage. And one of the biggest challenges we have on the island, which is why we have the preference for wind over solar, is that the times when we want to turn our electricity on, the times when we tend to have the lights on, are the times when the sun isn't shining. So the, 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 the graphs you look at are complete mis- 
mismatch between solar when it will provide you the most energy and when you actually need the most energy whereas wind is pretty consistent um, but what we need to then do is look at how we manage our storage and that's where we have either the interconnector as one option um, where we have the ability to turn on that demand at, at will to make sure that we can maintain a base load but also that we can manage peak demand um, and there's also the options around either battery steward, uh, storage sorry, or bioenergy and potentially something where we could use that on a demand-led basis um, but also provide some other benefits across the island. So I think there's a number of areas, some of those at the minute we're still in relatively early stages of exploring but for me the key point around this energy strategy is we absolutely must make sure that the decisions and the information that are contained within it are informed which is why we have that section on emergent policy things where we think we've got an idea of what we might like to look at but we're not 100% sure of where we'll land on that and that's absolutely right and that's for me the the beauty of the energy policy board having all the right people in a room at a time where we can have those conversations just to allow us to just sense check those directions that we're thinking of taking with the energy policy where we then put together a, a, a document that ultimately will come back and the next iteration we would look to bring back in July. And again some of the the, the criticism uh, or well, I don't know was it criticism it's hard, hard, often hard to say with Chris Thomas but one of the points that he made certainly was that there was no seat on the energy policy board for the head of the climate change uh, transformation team uh, and yet there was potentially a seat on the board for the MUA and were you for example a private energy developer you might well think that there's a gross unfairness that one of your you know, the, your public sector competitor effectively is sitting on the board making decisions. You know, and I think I said in there, you know, I'm certainly open to the idea of uh, Daphne coming onto the, the board. I think she provides a huge amount of value when I work with her on the climate change board. Um, but equally, I know that those conversations are happening. And I know that Steve Forden sits both on the climate change board, as do I, as does the DOI minister. So there is some interplay and, and overlap in terms of those boards, but obviously with quite different focuses. Um, in terms of MU, you know, a lot of the, the value they bring is in terms of that te technological information that they can bring to a discussion. Obviously, as with any committee, if there's something that's specifically related to them, they would need to recuse themselves unless they were providing an update on a project that's specifically relevant to them. Um, and as we know, the vast majority of focus at the minute, because of how we've structured it, is on public ownership. So there isn't a competitor in the broader sense of the term. But what we do know is also MU aren't necessarily going to build all of these things. So there will be processes and tenders where there will need to be external bodies coming in to do some of the construction, to do some of the provision, because MU simply aren't a, a building company. You know, they are an electricity provider. In, in terms then of the decision to go for public ownership, was that not made as a result of good technical advice given by the public energy provider um, and perhaps had different advice been uh, given you might have come up with a different solution. So that was done on independent uh, reports, not uh, not done by MU. Um, they were reports that looked at MU's data, but looked at also other data available from other jurisdictions and did a really comprehensive analysis of that and were very clear that public ownership provides very clear benefits in terms of both cost and security. Um, but as I say, there's a finite resource to government, so as much as public ownership would be a preference, the reality is there will need to be a blend, and it's absolutely right that as we 
develop the energy energy policies as we, we progress, we make sure we consider how best to do that and how best to integrate. We have some brilliant people on the island who I've had the opportunity to talk with, some great schemes, some great ideas, and they're all things that absolutely, for me, remain firmly on the table um, as things that we should be looking at. £27.50 was the figure per household that's been spent uh, on improving insulation on the island over the course of the the last year. Um, How is that going to incentivise people to significantly change? So we've had significant uptake of the energy efficiency scheme in terms of providing um, insulation to people, um, whether that be loft insulation, whether that be through thermostatic radiator valves, whether that be through draft excluders, all sorts of things that can help people um, in that regard. Um, And I think, you know, as I say, that also shows where actually reducing your uh, your, uh, improving your energy efficiency also has a tangible benefit on your cost as well because you can reduce your heating bills. So I think that there is money being spent. What I want to see in the new iteration of the energy efficiency scheme and green living grant scheme is something that takes that a step further, looks at expanding that out to more households, making sure it's working in the way that we want it to and getting the best delivery and outcomes. Because as we know, making sure that we decarbonise homes is going to be a key part of the, the next next piece of the jigsaw. And again, you know, things that you can do to, uh, to reduce your carbon usage uh, in relation to homes could potentially have a massive uh, upfront carbon cost. Um, what, what thinking is, is, is going into to, to that, that uh, situation? So, for example, if you wanted to significantly improve the insulation of your property and you use uh, carbon, uh, you know, fossil fuel-based uh, solutions to that, um, you, you're potentially not actually helping in terms of the overall carbon emissions. I think everything is a balancing act and it's making sure you know, that we can incentivise people to use the most uh, low carbon solutions in terms of making their homes more energy efficient um, and that will be different depending on the houses and we know that on the Isle of Man there's a very varied housing stock we know that there are a large number of older houses which will need different solutions um, and we know there are some houses possibly where some of the modern solutions just simply will never work so it's making sure that we have something that works for everyone um, but I think for me it's about incentivizing people to use the lowest carbon solutions that exist um, and I mean I always think and you may have come across in your own time in, in death it's a shame we can't do something with the you know the the lambs wool for example in terms of using it as an, an insulation i think there are some solutions that possibly are just not quite there yet um, but we're seeing people starting to innovate those elsewhere and it may well be there comes a time where it's economical to look at those on the island and i think that would be a brilliant brilliant success story if we could and Collis has been lobbying hard for lower speed limits in residential areas for those who follow Manx politics closely uh, they'll know that this is something that's been on your mind for about four maybe more than four years yes and I'm trying to support the residents I I did a very um, thorough actual door knocking campaign in Douglas Central to find out what residents opinion was about this it's not specifically my opinion but I am knocking on the doors of the people that answered the door and talked to me over 90% of them agreed that we needed a lower speed limit. So um, I brought a motion to Timwald in 2020, which was unanimously supported. And um, 
there was a report date given to that of March 2021, and here we are in January 2024, still waiting for that report. And that's why that was really my frustration um, prompted my question today. Uh, Chris Thomas, when he had uh, his brief uh, return uh, to, to DOI, certainly back as DOI minister, um, did a pilot um, scheme uh, in, around Balakameen, didn't he? Uh, w was that successful? Well, it was a proposed scheme. It's it's not been implemented as up to now. Um, I'm very grateful to the to the Department of Infrastructure for carrying that out. Actually, they really did engage with the community around Balakameen School. Um, the result of that was the scheme that they were proposing had a lot of one-way systems, speed bumps. It didn't go down very well. Um, and I think we have to bring people with us on this. But the majority of people supported the reduction to 20 mile an hour speed limit. So as I say, I'm gr very grateful to the department for the work that was done around that. Um, and hopefully speed limits will be speed limits will be implemented around Balakameen. But that doesn't satisfy the whole motion because this was a Timwood resolution agreed unanimously twice um, that speed limits on re in residential areas, specifically around schools, all island should be implemented. And the, the task was to report back on how they would do that. And we're still waiting. And, and one of the things, I mean, having spent some time as infrastructure minister and understanding a little bit about this, uh, one of the problems uh, about implementing a 20 mile an hour limit is if road users view the road as drivable at substantially more than 20 miles an hour, they will travel at that in the reasonable knowledge that there's very little actual enforcement uh, taking place. So you have to design roads, which is presumably where the Balakamine pilot uh, proposal came, uh, to, to actually slow traffic down. Yeah, but I think really there's, there's an alternative to that, isn't it? Isn't there? We could lower the speed limit, put the signs up and address the problems where they occur rather than trying to preempt them. Let's see what happens. And yes, you know, there is a problem with it. Well, actually, I don't think there is a problem with enforcement. There's no different enforcing 20 mile an hour than enforcing 30, 40, 50, 60. It's exactly the same enforcement. Do you think we should introduce speed cameras to actually um, bring uh, to, to so there would be clarity, at least to people driving in in particular areas that they knew if they drive more than the speed limits, they will be prosecuted. Well, I think that's actually we should, something we should consult on. Absolutely. You know, and that could have been part of, I guess, of the the consultation process that was around Balakameen, but that's a very small one. But yeah, let, let's go out and ask people, would they, would they agree with that? Because I, I think sometimes part of the problem is people don't like the speed, but then they don't like the solutions either. No, well, you know, there is, you know, I suppose we're all guilty in a way of, no, I don't want people driving fast by my house, but I'll drive fast by yours. That That's human nature, isn't it? So, I mean, it's just, I do think if we just reduced, if, if even if they did it in the Central Douglas area around Balakameen, to just trial it, to, to see what the response is and whether people do actually... It, that's not an expensive thing to do. Change the legislation, put up the signs. Were you convinced by Minister Krugel's answers? Absolutely not. I th I, do you know what? I just really think that department, the department is actually showing a complete disregard 
for, Tim, for a Timwald resolution. And that's not acceptable. And, and, and okay, if they haven't had the time or ability to do a full report, come back with progress or not. If there is no progress, come back and tell us why. But don't just ignore a Timwald resolution. That is not right. And we can assume that some of the problem here will be manpower, budgets or, or, or whatever it may be. But as you say, uh, without clarity from the minister, without the department reporting to Timwald, uh, it's you, you, you've got to just make those assumptions. Yeah, and that was the purpose of my question today, really, to establish that actually, even if there is no progress, there should be some reporting back. That's what was asked for. That's what should happen. Finally, a few months back, the Boundary Review Committee suggested changes to the northern constituencies. Laurie Hooper wasn't very enamoured with the committee's findings. Aaron Michael or perhaps Garth are wanting to snatch a bit of your constituency away from you and you're not best pleased. No, I mean, when I talked to the Electoral Commission about this, I was quite clear that arbitrary numbers on a page don't really mean anything. So in a, a part of the world, like, say, in America, where their districts are all numbered, there's not really a, a community sense around that. Whereas our constituencies here are very much based around community boundaries or, or town boundaries or village boundaries. And in Ramsey, I think that's very true. We have a town boundary, and inside the boundary it's Ramsey, and outside the boundary it's not. And it's not quite that clear-cut, because there are some parts of just outside Ramsey who I think are part of our Ramsey community, you know, the Dewar or, or Glen Alden being good examples. And so I think there is definitely an argument to say, well, maybe that is what Ramsey should, should be in terms of a, a constituency or an authority. But when you're looking then at what the Electoral Commission are proposing, which is to take streets, and on the one side of the street you'll be in Ramsey, and on the other side of the street you'll be in, in Aaron Michael or be in Garth, but all of you will still live in Ramsey. I think that doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. And the worry I've got around this, other than I think it will disenfranchise those people, because in, invariably they live in Ramsey, they will pick the phone up to their Ramsey MHK, but they won't have a Ramsey MHK, they'll have an Aaron Michael MHK. And if you have a constituency like Aaron Michael that's predominantly rural, what happens to the, the interest of those, say, two or 300 people who live in an urban community? Are they ever going to get a look in? So if you have an issue like rates reform, where if you're in the towns, there's very clear incentive to reform the rate system. If you live in the parishes, there probably isn't. Actually, which way is your MHK, being an Aaron Michael MHK, going to vote? Is he ever going to vote in your interest? And the answer is probably not, because there's only a few hundred of you. You're not really uh, going to be the focus of, of their attention. Whereas the Ramsey MHK is always going to represent the people of Ramsey. And I think that's my biggest concern with it, really, is the boundaries that are being proposed aren't really along those community lines. They are very arbitrary. You know, this is how we make up our quotas, almost. And, and I don't think that's a good way of drawing boundaries. I don't think that's a good reason for doing what's being proposed. Are you really suggesting that uh, MHKs would be so cynical as to look at their constituents and think, actually, the majority of the votes are going to be over there, not, not, not over here? I think what, what I mean is, if, if I'm an Aramichael MHK, the interests of my constituents would be, by overwhelming majority, the interests of a rural parish. The same in Ramsey. You know, if we were to say, well, I'd like to have a little bit of garth in the Ramsey constituency, it'd be exactly the same. Me saying, well, actually, my interests will be predominantly the interests of the people in Ramsey, because that's more of them there. And so even if you went on a straight, what are the majority of my constituents going to want kind of logic, 
I'm always going to default to Ramsey. I'm never going to default to that little pocket of Garth that happens to be in my neck of the woods. And that's the same with, with what's being proposed here. The Aramichael MHKs will always default to, well, what's going to help most of my constituents? It's going to be the rural interest, the village interest, the parish interest, not the interest of those, that small number of people that live in the town. So I'm not suggesting for one minute that it's a cynical kind of vote-grabbing approach. It's just the reality of a democracy is you try and represent the views of, of most people in your constituency. And in, inevitably, that's the way the vote will fall. It is this sort of reform actually, could it be described as tinkering at the edges? Um, and in reality, you know, we've, we've, we've had the southern area plan, the eastern area plan has recently been approved. Chances are there's going to be a lot of development in the south and the east, which is then going to knock out of kilter the um the, uh, the the constituencies yet again which could result in the north and the west losing a, a, a seat uh, and then uh, lo and behold the north and west plan comes along and the balance is is, is changed back again is 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 this um you know have, have we created a bit of a monster with this Perhaps. So I think there's definitely a case to say we should review the boundaries and the number of seats and all the rest of it on a regular basis. Once every 10 years, I think we do this. And I think that makes sense. Uh, what I would have liked the Electoral Commission to have done was look at this from a more uh, from a big picture perspective. So, for example, if they are saying that, well, the north of the island still needs four MHKs, but we're not quite sure where to draw that line, well, why aren't they recommending a larger single constituency in the north that covers Ramsey and the parishes, for example, with maybe four seats? It doesn't feel like they've gone and looked at all the various other options that may be open to them. It does very much feel like they've made some kind of a decision to say, well, we're only going to tinker around the edges, rather than saying, actually, maybe there is a case for saying... We need larger constituencies with more seats in them. Maybe we need to look at the number of MHKs. Is 24 the right number? There's lots of questions that they could have asked that, from memory, were part of the Timbal motion that we did ask them to go away and look at. So I'm, I'm a bit unclear as to how they've actually arrived at these conclusions. So I have offered to go and sit down and talk to them again to try and get a better understanding of, of where they're coming from. Uh, but ultimately, I think what, what we've seen so far doesn't, for me, reflect what would be good for the island. And in relation to that, I mean, there, there are different schools of thought, aren't there? There are... Uh, some uh, MHK, some uh, uh, political commentators who take the view that actually smaller constituency, one seat constituency is all you need, gives the uh, constituency member the opportunity to deal appropriately with all of his constituency concerns. Another school of thought, of course, says actually MHKs need to be spending a little bit more time on addressing the £150 million gap in finances and a little less time uh, dealing with the very local issues uh, that some MHKs uh, seem to see as their bread and butter. Yeah, so I've only ever been in a two-seat constituency, and I, I've always found it works quite well. Myself and Alex work quite well together, and there are some issues that more naturally I'm I'm better placed to deal with, and the same with Alex, he's better placed to deal with others. So we've always managed to split that work, I think, quite well, uh, and maintain a, a sort of a balanced focus between the really local constituency issues and then the more national strategic stuff. Uh, I'm, I, I can't speak for all my colleagues, obviously, but I'd like to think that everyone is in a similar boat where we do manage to work pretty well with our constituency colleagues. Would that change if you had single-seat constituency? I don't know. Uh, I mean, in Ramsey, we'd have two seats still, half of Ramsey, you know, north and south, perhaps. Would we still work together? Of course we would. So I'm not sure it would really change the dynamic all that much if you just split the current constituencies in half, essentially. So I'm not really sure I'm taken by by the, the arguments around constituency size. I do think there is a definitely a lot of validity in saying when a constituency gets too big, you can't effectively represent 
your constituents. You do lose that level of, of personal contact. So I'd be nervous, I think, if we were talking about, say, an all-island constituency. I, I don't think that would something that would work necessarily here. Um, but again, these are all the kind of questions I would have liked the Electoral Commission to have looked at, you know, rather than just looking at tinkering. Maybe they should have been asking some of the bigger questions around what is right for the island and giving Timor members an opportunity then to debate and to canvas and to think about this, rather than simply saying, oh, we're just going to move a couple of lines on a map. Laurie Hooper MHK there with some radical thoughts on Key's constituencies. Before that, we heard Anne Call at MHK and Defa Minister Claire Barber MHK. So what do you think? Is government's energy strategy an essential tool in fighting climate change or a load of greenwash? Can anyone really argue in favour of driving in residential areas at dangerous speeds? And what do you think about an all-island election to fill the 24 key seats? Let me know your thoughts on the programme by contacting philgorn at manxradio.com and get in touch if you have any ideas for future shows. Don't forget, this programme is available as a podcast on Manx Radio's website. For now, though, I'm Phil Gorn. Got a Mayo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>